It is great to be together as we worship God this morning, as we open his word and see how he might be shaping and forming us into his image. Did notice that the 9 o'clock last week was a nice surprise, that time change hour. A lot of people didn't know what to do with it. They showed up at church at 9, so uh, the true faithful came again at 9. The rest of them will be at 1045. They needed their sleep. But you're going to want a Bible. If you have a Bible, go on and open up to Genesis chapter 21. Uh, if you need a Bible, we have some people that walk around, slip up a hand, we'll get a Bible in your hand so you can follow along with us. As we've been making this journey through the book of Genesis, and, uh, and as you're finding your way to Genesis chapter 21, uh, one of the things I want to make sure you knew about is that, you know, when we talk about the budget and affirming the budget, that it, I mean, yes, that is part of just having a church and what it takes to function and do ministry and uh, to have staff and keep the lights on and all of that, that fun stuff. But every time that we go into as elders and as staff and look at what is the budget for the year, what we're asking is, all right, Lord, what are you calling us to go do? And then what's it going to take to do that? And we know that we are committed. This last year, one of our primary commitments, apart from just moving into this new space, making the move from the mill to here at Bold Springs, was... Uh, was go, doubling down on the next generation. We are about going after the next generation. And so over the last year, we have focused heavily on that and, and seen some amazing fruit from that investment, from that effort. And one of the things that we do to invest in kids is what we call fallout. It's a, it's a middle school camp, a middle school ministry. I'm going to show a, a brief video here in just a second. But I know that all of you have middle schoolers. Um, but you probably know somebody who does. And uh, you, some of you have had middle schoolers, and you're praising the Lord that that season of life is uh, through and past. Some of you are looking at the future of middle schoolers and praying to God now for the grace to make it through that season. We are currently uh, full fold into middle school, high school in our house right now, and it is a delight. Just pausing in my own emotional response in that. No, actually, it's an amazing season, an amazing time. You know, middle school is interesting in that. Um, but think back to when you were in middle school. I mean, it's, it's a hard season. You're, you don't know what to do with yourself. You're not comfortable in this body. And, and it's also in that, in that time period that kids are making decisions for their life and their faith that will impact the rest of their life. It was in go, seventh grade going into eighth grade that a young the youth minister named Greg Boone introduced me to Jesus. And I remember at a camp, look up lodge on the side of a hill next to Poplar Cabin, kneeling down with Greg and inviting Jesus to come into my heart, surrendering my life to him. And it changed everything about me. Now, obviously, there were some many ups and downs on the, the next 30 years of my life, but uh, in that moment, that, that surrender to Jesus set me on a different tra trajectory. And so I want to show this video. This is fallout. It's lots of fun, but lots of worship. Uh, they teaching kids to open, <clears throat> open the Bible <clears throat> Excuse me, and see what God might be saying to them. Um, and so even if you don't have middle schoolers, I want us to be a church that prays for middle schoolers, a, a church that invests, disciples, middle schoolers. It may not be you that in your home, but can you be praying for kids? Can you be showing up for kids? Can you be encouraging kids? That's who we are at Grace. Unapologetically, we are about going after the next generation. And so even as we watch this video, Though it may not apply to you directly in your home, I want us to be praying, God reach the next generation. 
So this is fallout from last year, and uh, we'll just show about a minute of it. We don't need to show the whole thing, and then, um, and then we'll continue on. So let's watch Fallout 2020. Those are memories those kids will never forget. And so I'm asking you as a church, Fallout comes up in a few weeks. If you have a kid, go on and sign them up for that. Um, if you don't, be praying for our kids. Some of you have asked about scholarshiping uh, kids to go to camp um, so that money will not be a factor to keep a kid from experiencing that weekend. Talk to me, talk to uh, Emily, Caleb, or Joseph, any of our student team. They'd love to be a part of that. And actually, I just want to pause right now. I mean, this is super important to me. Um, and, and I don't know if I'm feeling it more tenderly now. I mean, I, obviously, my own story, that, that's a, a season that's so important to me. But also, I have a fifth grader now, a fifth grade boy. And so I just think about um, where I was in fifth grade and, and that, those next couple of years. And so let's just pray. Let's pray for our kids and, uh, and pray for all the, the students that we are impacting and going after. So, Lord Jesus, we do. I, I pray for those boys and those girls uh, that are entering into that adolescent season. And we know that the world is going after them, Lord. The world is trying to convince them of what is true and right and good, who they are, trying to form their identity. And Lord, we reject that. We want to go to you. And so we are going after those kids in the name of Jesus, that it would be you that forms their identity, you that forms their future, you that forms their idea of what is right and good and true. And so, Lord, we lift these kids up to you. We, we, we pray for the ones that are a part of this church, for the families that are raising students in their own home, uh, raising kids. We, we, we pray for uh, the kids that um, we have not met yet, that don't have families that are praying for them in these schools that surround us. And we thank you for uh, NG3, for Good News Clubs, for Thrive Clubs, for FCA, that is uh, building relationships with kids that don't yet know you. And we pray for a great harvest of faith. So I pray in advance for this weekend. We just know what can happen when we set aside time to focus on you. And so I pray fallout would be a, a season of salvation in kids' lives that sets them on a whole new path. And so we pray all of these things in your precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're talking about, talking about kids and the next generation is also where we find ourselves in Genesis. Uh, Genesis is 
this account, our, the origin story of humanity. It's a story we find ourselves in. It's not the story that simply happened. It's a story that's happening. It's a story that, that makes sense of our lives and the world around us. That there is a God. If we just start right there, if we would orient our, Genesis reorients our life around the fact that we are not in charge of this world. We didn't make it. We don't control it. We don't hold the beginning. We definitely don't hold the future in our hands. It's not up to us. The world doesn't revolve around us. Genesis begins with this declaration that there is a God, and that God is king, and that God is in charge, and that God is powerful, and he knows everything, and he sees everything, but also he is good. There is a God, and he is good. He is a creator. He's creative, and he desires relationships. And so he fashions man and woman and, and sets them in a garden to live in intimacy, vulnerability with one another. Gives them authority, responsibility to steward, to have dominion over his creation. To take his goodness, his name, his character, the potential of his creation, and unpack it to the ends of the earth. That's a calling we still find ourselves in. Mankind created in the image of God to reflect his goodness and his glory. We see quickly, though, that as God continues to ask them this question, will you trust me? Will you follow me? Will you listen to my voice? Will, it be, will, will you orient your life around me and my ways and let me lead you into the right path? We see very quickly Adam and Eve make that decision. No, no. We want to run our lives. God, you, you run the universe. Let, let me rule my life. Let me sit on the throne of my world. Let me take control of my circumstances. Adam and Eve turning their back on God and turning against one another. We see sin, and with sin comes death. Enter the world, and with death, shame and guilt and fear and hiding and isolation. We tell this story every week that we've opened up this book of Genesis because it's only in this context of the, the potential and the beauty that is, that is slammed up against the brokenness and the pain that God's plan begins to emerge. And his plan is to restore all things back to himself. To redeem creation back to his original intent in Eden where humanity walked in relationship with the God who made them, who knows them, and loves them, who created them to carry his name, to be in covenant relationship with him. I mean, we see this in, in marriage. When, when, uh, when Sadie and I got married... Uh, we, we stood in front of each other at the altar, and uh, Buddy Hoffman, who was one of my mentors, was our uh, pastor, our officiant. Other little side note that's fun, when I, when I think about investing in middle school students, and I think about Greg's investment in my life, I remember he made a promise to me that he said, uh, in our little group of friends, um, a little punk seventh graders, and he said, I'm going to stick with you guys until you graduate. Which, of course, you know, we were all so arrogant, we were like, yeah, why not? We're amazing. Where else are you going to go? Um, and uh, he, 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 felt, he followed through on that promise, it's, which is amazing in hindsight now in ministry, knowing the average youth ministry sticks around for about 18 months 
uh, to have somebody that was willing to walk with us through those years. And so much so that at my wedding day, it was me and Sadie standing in front of Buddy, and beside me, my best man, was Greg Boone, uh, and, uh, who, who was there on my wedding day. But as Sadie and I stood there uh, saying our vows to one another, we were enacting this ancient uh, reality called covenant, and this declaration that what I have is now yours, and what you have is now mine, that we are entering in to binding relationship with one another. I'm binding my heart to yours, to becoming one. And in that moment also, Sadie took on my name. She became Sadie Crosnick, which I apologize for uh, many times. I think I'm pretty confident that there's still family members that don't know how to spell our last name. But she and I both together now carry this name, Krosik. Wherever we go, we represent the Krosiks. So we try to tell our kids, you represent the Krosiks. You're a Krosik. All of that is this beautiful, symbolic picture of the reality that God is inviting us into. This covenant union, two becoming one, God of the universe saying, all that I have, it's yours. And everything you have may be mine. And you carry my name. Wherever you go, you will represent me. When you walk in the room, it is as if the kingdom has arrived with you. It's not just we're Krosics, but we carry the name, the identity of God. We represent him. And so God shows out of the brokenness and the pain of humanity this family, this man and this woman, who he, he saw in them the desire to listen, to follow, to obey. A guy named Abram and his wife Sarai. And he led them out of the land of their fathers, the land of everything they knew. They had to leave everything to follow after God. They had to leave their father's livelihood, their father's protection, their father's provision. And they also had to leave their father's God's. Their father's identity. Because God was saying, I will be your God. And you will now find your protection, your provision, your identity in me. All I'm asking is that you keep walking with me. You keep listening. You keep following and you keep obeying. Now we see, as over the last few weeks, these twists and turns of of Abram and Sarai trying to to, to wrestle this thing out. And there were some detours, some moments where they took things in their own power, their own hand, their own limited understanding, made decisions that sort of seemed to derail things for a moment. We've all been there, right? Just the journey of learning to follow God and we take our detours, our moments of trying to take control for ourselves or make decisions on our limited knowledge that seem to derail things. But the good news is simply this, God cannot be derailed. Your failures, your struggles, your temptations, your disappointments don't undermine the purposes and the plans of God. He is way bigger than you are. Which the amazing grace on that is, and many of you are living testimonies of this, right? This is your story. Is you know the detours. You know the moments that you try to take life on your own terms and then looked at it and realized it's all falling apart in my hands. I can't do this. And God met you right there in that moment, didn't he? And even was able to take that brokenness, that pain, those disappointments and failures and turn them into something really beautiful. Monday night at Woven, for those of you that were here at the women's event, 
uh, uh, heard amazing, amazing stories, a hundred whatever ladies that gathered to worship and to, to share their story. And, and some of the stories that were told, are, they're, it's their stories to tell, but the testimonies are, are individuals that we've known and have known their story and, and watched their story blossom and grow, but they were all testimonies of this. My most shameful, lowest broken moments are now places to display God's glory and grace in my life. And if you ask any of those women, or at least a couple of the women that shared, ask them a few months ago if they were able to be honest. Hey, what's the most embarrassing, or a year ago, however long ago, that, what's, the, what's the, the thing that you would not ever want to tell anyone that you just wish didn't happen, that you could just keep it locked in a closet and let no one know about? It would be these stories that on Monday night they bravely, like courageously stood up here and told a room full of women. Why? Because the point of the story was not their failure. The point of the story was God's grace and redemption. And the amazing thing is simply this. I mean, there's lots of amazing things. Simply was not the word I meant to use there. One of the amazing things is this. That not only is it God's grace and redemption in their lives and their stories, but the very ministries that they are leading are tied to the places of failure and pain in their past. Now, why do I say all that? Because it's true for you, too. For me. The places of brokenness and failure and struggle, the, the hidden closets that we just wish no one would peek into, are actually the places that God is saying, throw open the door, let my light shine in, because that's where I want to display my glory. It's not about your brokenness, it's about my grace. And we see this in Abraham and Sarah, that every time they derailed, every time they took detours and shortcuts, tried to take control, and God called them back, they would always root themselves back to a place of worship. They would go back to the place that God last met them, and he would keep moving them forward in the story. So much to the point that God finally shows up. The years have passed. God has promised that he's going to bring a family through Abram. That there will be a child born from his seed, from his lineage, there would be a, a son that would be a blessing to the whole world. That God is going to enact his plan of redemption for all the nations through the family of Abraham. And finally we see the fulfillment of this plan. God having taken Abraham, made his covenant with him given him the mark of circumcision, this forever mark on his body that would be both a seal and a reminder. You belong to me and you represent me. You're mine and I am yours and I will forever change you. And so it uh, I, shortly thereafter, after this circumcision covenant act, God shows up again for Abram and tells him, it's going to be through your wife, Sarah, that you will have a son. Both of them well into old age, this miraculous birth. So in chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. I love that verse. I have it underlined my Bible. The Lord did as, visited as he had said, and he did as he had promised. 
Now, yeah, this is almost 30 years later from when God spoke and when God promised. Again, this reminder that our, our, so often we want immediate results with God, and God says, no, just keep walking with me. It'll happen, but trust me with the timing. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God has spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, uh, and whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. I love that the Bible keeps repeating, this is Sarah that had this child. This isn't the, the, the young maidservant, this isn't another, another wife, a surrogate. No, this is Sarah's child. The one who's so far past childbearing ages, it's ridiculous. It, it, it's almost a joke, and we see that it's almost a, it's a, it's a laughable thing. The name Isaac means laughter. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And God, Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abram, Abraham was a hundred years old. When his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The son of laughter. The son of promise. This miraculous birth. A miracle so great, the only response is to laugh. In amazement and wonder, God did a thing that doesn't make sense to anyone. But in hindsight, it actually makes sense that God would want to fulfill his redemptive plan for the whole world in a miraculous way that makes no sense apart from God. So there's this celebration of laughter. Now, the backstory of that laughter, if you remember a few chapters back, that when God showed up to announce to Sarah that she's going to have a son, in fact, what he says is, hey, listen, a year from now, I'm going to come back and visit you, and you're going to have a child. And he's saying that to Abraham. Well, Sarah is kind of eavesdropping in the background. She, it says she's in the doorway of the tent, kind of leaning in and listening to what these angelic messengers are telling her husband. And, and when the angel says to, to Abraham, hey, in a year from now, your, your wife Sarah, she's going to have a son, Sarah laughs to herself. Like, okay, yeah, that's ridiculous. Who's going to bear me a son? That old man is going to bear me a son? This old body is going to wean a child? I don't think so. Now, God calls her out on it and, go, and says to Abraham, he knows that she's listening. I love that about God. You can't sneak up on him. Is that, he, says, uh, he says to Abraham, why is Sarah laughing? Is anything too hard for God? Now, Sarah gets a little defensive, and she goes, I, I, I wasn't laughing. It's like she calls out from the tent, I wasn't laughing. And he's like, yes. And then God's just straight up honest with her. She's like, yep, you were laughing. But it's like God knew. Yeah, I mean, like, she doesn't know what to do with herself. It makes no sense. But he knows that her laughter will come on the other end when he fulfills that promise. And so sure enough, we have this miraculous birth. This child is born. God did as he had promised. Now, again, it takes another turn, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, so Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. The word laughing can be used in two different ways. One is laughter of delight. The other is laughter of mockery. And so Ishmael off to the side laughing at this child that's been born to these old parents. It's almost like the kid who's 
you know, born to children their old age, and it's like, okay, yeah, is your great-granddad going to show up for your graduation? I mean, he's mocking this child. It, like, it, you make no sense. This makes no sense. Well, Mama Bear doesn't like that very much. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. Kind of forgetting that that son of Hagar is actually her idea in the first place. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. He loved his son Ishmael. He loves his son Isaac. They're both his boys. He's distressed. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. I'm not going to dig into that story. I encourage you this week to spend some time. The beautiful thing is, is, that, is that there's this rift. God is setting apart Isaac for his plans and purposes. And that's going to be the path of the covenant. That's going to be the path of the blessing. That blessing is not just for Isaac and his family. That the blessing is for the entire world, but it's going to be through Isaac. So God's setting apart that family line. So Hagar gets sent off, but God says, listen, I'm going to be with them too. There's a beautiful story of God showing up to Hagar and her pain and her, uh, and her aloneness and hearing her, seeing her. And again, God just shows up in people's brokenness and, and, uh, and confusion. And God does that. God promises to bless Ishmael. He's going to protect that child. So Abraham takes God on faith, releases Ishmael and his mom, and they end up establishing themselves uh, in, in a different land, a different area of the land. But the story now focuses in on Isaac, the son of Abraham, born to Sarah, this miracle child. Skip ahead to verse uh, 22. The other reigning patriarch of the land is a guy named Abimelech. He's like the other, uh, you know, if you think about like two, two uh, business moguls in a city, that they own everything. Well, Abraham's one of them, Abimelech is the other one. And Abimelech is the one that comes and he shows up and uh, brings to the commander of his army, his second in, in command, and says to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Whatever this life that Abraham is living is displaying God's power. And so he wants to, to make a covenant with Abraham. Again, go back and read that story. It's a, it's a, uh, a great story of, of God beginning to, to extend his kingdom through Abraham, even in that place. But the point is this. Things are going great for Abraham. Things are good for his family. Yeah, there is some tension and some rift, but he knows Ishmael's going to get taken care of. Good things are in store for that son. Things are great at home. Sarah's happy, this baby's growing up, this miraculous baby is, is, is growing, this son of promise. Things are good with the family, and things are great with business, his job. I mean, things are going well in his work. In fact, other competitors are coming to him and saying, hey, can we like make a merger of our companies because things are going so good for you, we want to be a part of it. I mean, he is flying high. Finally, right? I mean, the man deserves it. He's been wandering in the wilderness for 25 years, waiting for God's promises. He's left everything multiple times. He's given everything back over to God, trusted God, come back to God. He's been through battles and struggles, temptations and threats. He's dealt with famine, lack and loss. It's about time. I mean, Abraham deserves to retire at this point. Like, he's done it. And then we get to Genesis 22. 
Now, at the end of 21, it's like this, this sense of settling into the story. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, this is verse 33, and called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. I mean, it's a name that makes sense from Abraham's perspective. You are the God that shows up and keeps showing up and always has and always will be. You are the faithful one from beginning to end. You are the eternal God, the powerful God, the miraculous God. And I love that it says that specifically he planted a tree, a tamarisk tree. A tamarisk tree, uh, actually it would kind of look like that tree over there more. It's a, it's a low tree that has a lot of foliage. It's a shade tree, which in an arid desert region, it would be a place of, of safety. It would be a place of life, of rest and refuge, where shepherds could, and, uh, and, uh, and nomads could, could get some shade for, or some uh, reprieve from the sun. It's also slow growing. There's, a, there's an ancient um, Hebrew saying that says you don't plant a tree for yourself, you plant a tree for your grandchildren. When you plant a tree, it's a statement of hope for the next generation. That you'll never enjoy this tree's shade or this tree's fruit, but my kids will. I mean, it's been the whole call of this Acorns to Oaks campaign, hasn't it? That we want to do something here in this city that is so significant, so big that we know that it outlasts us. That it's not just simply for us to enjoy, but it's for our kids and their kids to enjoy. And that the real fruit of what we're doing now, we won't actually get to see. Because it's for the next generation. So Abraham in faith, the eternal God, calls on the name of the Lord. For Abraham, it's never been about his own name. It's always been about God's name. And he plants a tree, a tree of hope for the next generation. Ah. <sighs> Deep breath. Enjoy it. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. God tested Abraham. This next passage uh, is one of the, the, the central focal points of the entire Jewish faith from which Christianity derives its roots. It's also a painful passage. And the timing of it, when it seems like everything is starting to go right, kind of hits hard. God tested Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. This man who's learned to walk with God, to trust God, to obey God. In this moment when it would make all the sense in the world for him to go, for the love. Let me just sit under my tree and enjoy things for a minute. God, haven't I done enough? Haven't I proven enough? Haven't, haven't I shown up enough? Haven't I come back enough? And what is Abraham's response? Here I am. Here I am. This is the testimony of the Bible. There's a modern day theology out there that if you begin to follow Jesus, life is going to go really great. And, and things are just going to turn around spot on and, and you know, pain-free, comfortable living. And it's going to happen fast because that's how things happen in our world. They just happen fast. The reality of the Bible is this testimony of steadfast faith over time. That God's desire 
is for us to walk with him and keep walking 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 with him. It's so much so that it's like there's this whole deconstruction thing happening in 20-somethings. And, and one of the, the main roots of that is that when things start to go bad, the first thing we begin to question is that whether or not God is good. When the job is harder than I thought six months in. When I've moved to that city and a year later I still don't have any friends. Well, where is God? This, this Christianity thing, this faith thing, this obedience thing is supposed to work out easier than this. It's supposed to be faster than this. I'm supposed to get answers quicker than this. The testimony of the Bible, if we're going to be people of the word, is that God is a slow-moving God who calls us to keep listening and following and obeying, even when it doesn't make sense. Because at the end, he is still good. And he is still true. And he is still faithful. And we are shaped in the process. And God's test. What's the point of a test? That word is used several times throughout scripture. Exodus 16, 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Exodus 20, 20, as God is giving the Ten Commandments to, to keep the fear of God before us, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Deuteronomy 8, 2, as the people were in the wilderness, God says, you should remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these past 40 years to the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The point of test is not to reveal what is absent, it's to reveal what is there. The point of test is to prove, to show, to reveal who we are. And where our heart is. And it's not even like God doesn't know, right? There's this question, uh, this, this sort of rabbinic discussion that goes around this. of like, does this, does this passage undermine the omniscience or the all-knowing power of God? God's testing to find out, is Abraham going to trust me or not? It's not like God's sitting back on waiting. He's like, gosh, I really hope you get this. Like us watching the Braves game, you know, game seven, waiting for them to blow it in the ninth inning, even though there's seven runs ahead. It's like, are they going to do it or not this year, right? Like on pins and needles, waiting for that final out. And God's like, I don't know. Abraham, you've done pretty good so far. Are you going to do it? No, God knows. So what's the point? He's wanting to reveal what is in Abraham. That's the point of tests. Later on uh, in the New Testament, the, the, James will write that we, we delight in, in our, we, that we should take, take joy in our suffering. Because it's in our suffering or in the trials that we face that God reveals the hope that is in us. So God, revealing what is in the heart of Abraham, says to him, what is the test? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So what, sorry, what God? Take the son that you promised? 
the miraculous son, what we've waited for, what we've, what we've held on to in hope, what we delighted in and laughed over, give up the very thing that you promised to me in the first place? What is Abraham's response? Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He doesn't argue. He doesn't deliberate. He doesn't take a, a week to be like, all right, God, let me spend some time. Let me mull this over. Let me meditate on it. Let me pray and get back to you. God speaks. And the next, moment, the next morning, early the next morning, the first thing, that immediate obedience, Abraham gets up and he goes. That he's willing to keep walking with God. Why? Because he trusts him. He trusts God. Later on, Hebrews, in Hebrews 11 will reflect back on this moment in Abraham's life. And that Abram is holding on in faith knowing that even if he gives his son up to death, that somehow God can bring back from the dead the very thing that he gave up. Abram's willing to keep walking with God. He trusts God enough that he's not willing to hold on too tight to anything. And so he goes with his son Isaac. And God knows how big of a deal this is. Like even the fact is that you're, the son you love, your only son, it echoes back to Genesis 12 when God asked Abraham to leave everything, to go somewhere that he doesn't know where God is taking him. He doesn't know the rest of the plan. He only knows that God is calling him to go. So he goes back to the beginning. Genesis 12 is repeated in Genesis 22 to take God at his word and to follow him. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together familiar story, but I want us to, to live into it for just a minute. The anguish and the pain of that journey of a father about to give up the son that he loves more than anything else on the planet. He leaves immediately, but it's not an immediate response. It's like, you know, the first time that I went skiing and I was standing on the top of a hill and was like scared to death. And my only thought was just do it as fast as you can. Just get this thing over with. Drop off the ski lift and just go and tumble down the mountain and embarrass yourself in front of everybody. 
but just get it over with. Abraham immediately responds, but it's a three-day journey of walking with his son. Three days of looking down and seeing his precious boy and knowing what is about to happen. And at any moment, that thought being, we could just turn around. We could give this whole thing up. Do we really have to do this? God will forgive me, right? Surely there's a better way. And you can even, the sense of pain there, the language is such that, that when, when uh, Isaac speaks up and he says, hey, Dad, is that he's actually interrupting. So you can almost imagine that, that Abraham is just this, like, this ongoing diet or monologue that he's just trying to keep his mind off it. Check out that tree over there. And how about the birds and the weather and the braves? You know, I mean, he's just walking. And he's just talking. He's just probably trying to keep his mind off of his thing. And finally, his son interrupts. Hey, Dad, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, that's interesting about the Braves. But I got a question here. I've been thinking while I've been walking these last few days, something's not adding up here. We're going to offer this offering, and I've got the wood, and you've got a knife and, a, and the fire for the, for the burnt offering, but we're missing something pretty key in the whole story. Where's the lamb? And Abraham's faith as he turns back to his son and says, you know what, son, God himself will provide a lamb. God will do it. God's going to do something here. I don't know what it is, but God's going to do something here. He's going to show up. I know he is because he has over and over again. So we're going to follow him and we're going to listen to him and we're going to trust him. And this scares me to death and it feels like I'm about to lose everything that is precious in my life. I will trust God and son, you're walking with me. We're doing this together. And so they go to the place that God had told them. Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. That sense of binding his son comes with it this full-hearted commitment to God's plan. He commits himself to the act. He is going to follow through on what God has told him to do. Now, one caveat is that uh, to know is that even though this idea of like sacrificing your son as a child, even just, I mean, the idea of giving up your child is uh, an awful, awful idea, but especially as a sacrifice to the gods. But in Abraham's world, this would not have been unheard of. They would have been surrounded by people groups that this was a normal part of their worship. Because you were expected to give a portion of everything to your children. It, for, for the fertility rites um, of the Canaanites involved the child sacrifice. If you, if you wanted a child, you had to, to kill a child to get a child and to keep the lineage going. If you come to Israel with us, we'll take you to the place that Jesus refers to as the gates of hell. And uh, it's a giant cave in the side of the mountain there, and it was known for is that that was the place that child sacrifices were offered uh, to, to appease the gods. I mean, that would have been common in the world that Abraham inhabited. And so he's, okay, I guess you're a guy like all the other gods. You're demanding a sacrifice. I'm just trusting you on the other end that somehow your promise to give me a son is still going to come to pass. But we know that God is not like a god like any other god. And though he asks for the sacrifice, doesn't actually ask for the killing. 
So when they came to this place, he binds himself. That word binding is actually the word Akita. The Akita is, uh, is what this story is known as in, in Jewish tradition. And it's a story that gets read every year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And when they blow the ram's horn, what they call the shofar, that you're to remember the Akita, the moment of binding of Abraham binding himself, his son to the altar, and in the same way that we bind ourselves in obedience to God. Lays him on the altar on top of the wood, and then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11, but... The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. I was fully present to you in the moment you asked me to leave and to do this unbelievable act that makes no sense. I was present to my son when my son asked, how, how is this going to happen? We're missing something. And I am fully present to you now in this most terrifying moment of my life. Here I am, God. What do you do in a test? What do you do in times of struggle or trial, of pain, of loss? What do you do when it feels like what's inside of you is getting squeezed out, is being revealed? Here I am. The challenge is to withdraw or to give up, to check out to find a shortcut or a way around it, to numb or to avoid. But in the midst of those moments of pain, in those, moments, in those, in those times of, that things are being revealed in us, is to ask that question, okay, Lord, what do you want me to know? I am fully present to you in this moment. What are you doing here? I am fully available to you in this moment. Here I am. And God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or, any, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So what were the results of the test? What was revealed? Well, there's a blessing for God. Now I know that you fear God. Now it has been proven that I am the focus and the source and the hope the priority of your life. And with that, the relationship between them goes deeper. There is a blessing for Abraham that God will provide. He's not just the everlasting God, but he's Jehovah Jireh, the providing God. He's the God that will see to it that things will turn out. A God that can be trusted. And what has Isaac learned? He's seen his father's faith. That Abraham's allegiance is to God above all else. The most important thing 
for any of us as parents or as leaders or as teachers or as mentors is for our children or the children, the next generation around us to see our faith. That the most important thing in our life is God, not them. That our world doesn't revolve around them. That our world revolves around God. Our obedience, our allegiance is to him. And our God is whatever we value the most. Whatever we're willing to sacrifice for. It's an idol that becomes anything other than God. And it's often the things that are closest to us that are at the biggest risk of becoming idols. But Isaac knows who's first in in Abraham's life. How do your children get to see your faith? How will the people that you mentor and coach that you lead, your employees, how do they see your faith? What does it look to li- look like to live by faith in a broken world? What are we willing to give up? What are we going after? Now, the beautiful thing about this story is it's not just a powerful story of a man's faith and obedience to God and God's provision on a mountain. The story is also a powerful prediction, a foreshadow of what's going to come. We know that on that same mountain, thousands of years later, that son of a son of a son of a son of Abraham, that seed, that promised seed, that would be provided for the redemption of the world, Jesus would offer his life as a sacrifice for all mankind. That Abraham loved God so much he was willing to sacrifice his son. God loves humanity so much that he's willing to sacrifice himself. The rabbis used to have this argument around this passage and they would ask the question, Why did Isaac carry the wood? It makes no sense. It's a detail in the story, but they believed every word of the Bible matters. There's meaning in every word, every phrase. Why did Isaac carry the wood? They don't know. Abraham took two servants with him. The early church fathers pointed out that that was a mystery until Jesus himself carried the wood of the cross on his back to that place that he would be sacrificed. That ram that was caught in the thicket by its horns, why was it by its horns? Why wasn't it just caught by its leg? Because it would be an unblemished sacrifice, a perfect ram, not broken, not torn, that Jesus himself would become that perfect sacrifice of atonement for the sins of humanity. Why to servants walking beside this father and son on this three-day journey to the mountain because one day there would be a father that would be offering his son who would be carrying a cross that would be surrounded by two others onto a mountain where he would, on a three-day journey from death to resurrection. The mysteries hidden deep in this passage that God would ultimately fulfill in Jesus Christ 
But the question that God is asking Abraham, the question that God is asking Adam and Eve is the question that he still asks through Jesus. Will you trust me? And I am willing to sacrifice everything to restore you in relationship back with myself. Is my sacrifice, God asks, sufficient for you? Even as we take communion and worship, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up, we remember Jesus, a son of promise that walked up a hill in perfect submission, bearing the wood on his back under the watchful gaze of his father's plan. But this time there would be no ram, for the son was the lamb, substituted for us, that we might be welcomed into God's kingdom, into God's family, so that our sins could be forgiven. Jesus passed the test, and what got revealed was the love for us, a grace sufficient to bring us back into the arms of our Father. On that hillside with Greg, when I was in seventh grade, to the best of my ability, I recognized that I, I was lost, that I was struggling, that if this was true, that if there was a God that was willing to give up everything that I could be reconnected to him, then I was willing to give up everything to follow him. And surrendering my life to Christ in that moment, to the best of my middle school understanding, was simply receiving the grace that he had already shown to me when Jesus hung on that cross on that mountain 2,000 years ago. This question is still true for us. Will you receive what Christ has done for you to surrender your life in faith to the God who sees you, who knows you, who loves you, who gave up everything for you? That's the story of Abraham and Isaac. That's what was promised, and that's what was pointed to. God is faithful, and God is available. So I want to pray. I want to invite us to take communion. And as we take communion, it's that reminder that Jesus, before heading up that hill, carrying the wood of that cross to be hung between two, two others under the watchful gaze of his Father, would take that cup and say, or that bread and break it and say, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so we have these little cups of communion, these symbols of these reminders of that body of Christ given for us. And he would say, take this cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of salvation. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Will you receive the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ so that you can walk in the presence of God in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this incredible story of a father who is willing to give up everything for you that all along was actually about a father <laughs> who is willing to give up everything for us. For your namesake, for your glory.
And even right now, God, I ask if there's anything that we're holding on to that is keeping us from running into your arms, receiving your forgiveness and your grace, give us the courage, Lord, to confess that, to acknowledge that to you. And Lord, if there's anyone that right now is living apart from you, apart from your grace, from your mercy, have that courage, that hope to pray, to open their heart to you, to surrender their life to you as King, as Lord and Savior, to receive the forgiveness of their sins, to be able to walk back in relationship and covenant with you. So God, bless this communion, bless this act of worship as we lay our lives back before you. We bind ourselves to you, Lord. Will you be at work in us? You are God. You're the provider. You are good. And we trust you.